Today on Blue 58, I think Aaron Rodgers is still pretty good, but a new stat from a source that we trust says he is the best player in the NFL. Does that make sense? Let's figure out what to make of total points. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. I'm excited that we are just one episode away from previewing the Seattle Seahawks and their trip to Lambeau Field this weekend in the divisional round. But for right now, we've got one more where we get to talk about basically whatever we want. Sure, we could really start previewing the, the Seahawks now, but let's talk about stuff that's going to help us understand this game a little bit better. Starting with total points. In our last episode, we ever so briefly addressed uh, part of a question asked by listener Mickle concerning total points. This is something that uh, came out late last week. Sports Information Solution introduced this new stat, and I would like to talk about that now since I think this is something that we're going to use fairly frequently in future discussions about the Packers and the NFL. What is total points? Well, thankfully and helpfully, Sports Information Solutions has written a blog post about it, a a full explainer on footballoutsiders.com. And here is a quote from that explaining what this exact system is. And we'll use more quotes from this throughout our discussion here. Sports Info Solutions, they say, has developed a system called Total Points that seeks to do just that. Evaluate every player and every play in the NFL using our wealth of charting data and the expected points framework, end quote. So first and foremost, the question we have to ask here is who is Sports Information Solutions? I've mentioned their name many times. I've quoted from them several times. And we're doing their, you're using their stuff more and more because they're making more and more stuff available to the public, including total points. So who are these people? They are sports charting company that used to focus on just baseball, but they expanded into football about four years ago, and we use their stuff a lot, as I've said. Football Outsiders, more importantly, uses their charting data, and I like Football Outsiders. I trust what they do. I think they have good analytics, and therefore, SIS gets a lot of built-in cred with me. We're going to quote from the article that uh, Alex Vigderman of SIS wrote for Football Outsiders pretty extensively here as we go through this question. So back to that question at hand. What is total points? Again, using charting data and the expected points playbook, they or play, yeah, I guess playbook framework, they put together points that a player generates for his team throughout the season. That is just for offensive players, though. For defensive players, they have a points-saved metric. So both of these happen under the umbrella of total points. For offense, it's points uh, uh, earned, and for defense, it's points saved. To really understand this, though, we've got to dive into expected points. And I talked about this a little bit on our episode about punt returns last time around, and I'm not sure I did the greatest job of explaining it. Fortunately, the pros at Sports Information Solutions offered up a good explainer for us. Here's their quote. Football is a very tough sport to evaluate statistically. And I'm going to be offering asides throughout these. I'm not always going to be doing the quote, end quote type stuff. So football is a very tough sport to evaluate statistically. Yes, we understand that. Uh, To resolve the issue of the overall complexity of the game, many analysts have settled on a common language when talking about the impact of different events during the game. That language is expected points. At any point in time in a game, the expected points is the average value of the next score of the game, regardless of when it occurs or who scores. This allows us to understand how valuable 
just a change in field position is, regardless of whether there was a score on that drive or not. The value of any individual play can be calculated as expected points added, or EPA, which is the difference in EP before and EP after a given play. So I'm going to break in here for a second. EPA breaks down pretty simply. If your EPA be, or if your expected points uh, on one play, say for a first and 10 from the 30-yard line is 1, you gain 5 yards and your expected points for second and 5 is now 1.2, your EPA for that play was 0.2. Continuing with the, in, with the quote now. Having EPA as a currency allows all sorts of different play results and events to be compared apples to apples, taking into account the fluctuating value of yards and downs as the other changes. And this allows for really interesting analysis when applied on a holistic level. For example, EPA shows that quote-unquote staying ahead of the chains with a run of four yards on first down is most often a negative play. The rare exceptions include plays at the outer end of field goal range. So that's a big long quote kind of explaining what expected points added is and expected points as well. This is kind of, I think it's pretty intuitive when you really kind of get the terms nailed down, exactly what expected points are and what expected points added are, I think it all kind of clicks into place pretty easily. You want to be adding value with every play. And the players that add the most value are the ones that are going to add the most points or the most expected points to your total. Now, it's not perfect because it's all outcome-based, not process-based, but more often than not, someone who is consistently generating value through expected points, they're not going to be just getting lucky that often. So continuing, why then, if we've got this great system in expected points and expected points added, do we need something new called total points? They continue. Where the typical EPA model struggles, though, is player analysis. Quote-unquote traditional EPA-based analysis of players might read like, quote, player X was worth 27 EPA catching passes in 20, 2017. But that really means player X's team gained 27 EPA on plays in which player X caught a pass. There isn't any real attribution of who is responsible for that added value, which is why SIS sought to develop a more useful and robust model that really takes advantage of the wealth of data available, a model called total points. So you can really see what they're going for here. This is something that is a problem for every stat in just about every sport. So you're an old school guy, so you get the paper delivered to your house every morning and you didn't catch up, you didn't stay up to catch the end of Monday Night Football last night. This is a Tuesday in the scenario. So you crack open the paper and see that whoever was playing last night, this is the final score. And you look at all the stats, you see all the stats in the box score, and it looks like somebody might have had a really nice game, but you don't really know how he ended up with the stats he did or why unless you watch the game. And even if you watch the game, you may not always see how all the moving pieces fit together. And I don't think any stat or evaluation method is really going to be perfect in, in adding that context, but at least this is a step in the right direction, a step towards something that's going to allow you to do that. So this seems like a pretty good idea. I think overall we have two ends of the evaluation spectrum right now. You've got the analytics people and you've got the film grading people. And boy, do they not like each other. Even within the, within the communities, 
the the people who who prefer analytics and the people who who grind tape all the time there are, are little factions and I, I've been watching a, a, one of those conflicts play out on my Twitter timeline this week. It it gets awful petty, boy does it. Uh, but really, there are those two schools. You got analytics and film grading, or analytics and scouting, stats and scouting. I guess if you want to put it that way, analytics. The analytics movement, I think, has peaked right now with EPA. Every single play has a given value, and what you do with that value is kind of up to you, but at least we have the raw data. That's the framework, and that's good. The problem with EPA is that it's kind of player agnostic, as they laid out in this blog post. You don't necessarily know what players are actually doing for themselves just by the raw EPA numbers. It's hard to marry EPA to individual players, and I think a lot of people who look at these numbers understand that. With a large enough data set, you can get a pretty good idea, but on a play-by-play basis, mm, it's kind of hard. But then on the film grading side, think somebody like Pro Football Focus or just a traditional scout, they're looking at every player on every play. That's good. You're trying to figure out why people are doing what they're doing and what they are doing what they're doing and whether or not what they're doing is actually helping the team or not. The problem is grades are subjective, at least partially. You can be as objective as you possibly can, but your interpretation of that is inherently going to be subjective. That is bad. Grades shouldn't be subjective. To an extent, they're always going to be, but imagine if all of your grades in school were primarily subjective. Imagine if your paycheck was subjective. For some of us, it is. For those of you unlucky, or perhaps if you're good at it, fortunate enough to work in sales, I guess your paycheck is a little bit subjective. But... For evaluation purposes, how one player grades someone or how one player grades in in one scout's mind might differ a little bit to the next scout. You need your system to be as consistent as possible. And I think, to their credit, somebody like Pro Football Focus, a company like Pro Football Focus, has really landed on a method that I think is allows them to get repeatable results, which is what you want in analytics and research and stuff like that. But it's still not always as precise. And you run enough scouts and grades through your rubric, eventually you start to get a little bit of noise in there too, like like anything. So adding another tool to our toolbox here, something that maybe bridges the gap between grading every play and just analytics is probably a good idea. So what will total points actually do? Back to the blog post. Total points takes the common currency of EPA and distributes the value gained or lost on a play to the different players involved based on their impact on the play. Using the wealth of SIS charting data available, this affords an unprecedented assessment of who of the value provided individually by each player on the field. Take these two incomplete passes for an example. I will. Thank you for offering that. In the first one, the quarterback misses on a quick slant, throwing it way behind the receiver. On the second, the quarterback is forced to escape the pocket after the left guard blows a block. Despite that, he delivers a strike to a receiver streaking down the sidelines. Who drops it? Now, most traditional evaluation systems would consider these plays basically the same. The pass was incomplete in each case. But so much more happened to inform the evaluation of the players involved. So let's take apart those examples a little bit. I think the first one is pretty straightforward. The quarterback misses the quick slant. The EPA for that play would be negative. But almost all the negative EPA would be attributed to the quarterback. He missed the throw. It was his fault. The next one, you could break up the same negative EPA three ways. 
You've got the guard blowing the block. You've got the receiver dropping the pass. And you've got the quarterback who may still get a little negative EPA here because it, well, maybe that pass could have been slightly better, but probably not even close to as much as he'd have gotten in the first play. Responding to their quote at the end there, most traditional evaluation systems would consider these plays basically the same. Got to push back a little bit. I think that's only partially true. Most traditional evaluation systems, I wouldn't think, really consider these plays the same. I don't think anybody, even just watching the game, would consider those two plays the same. Any film grader with just a passing amount of experience would grade those plays differently. The box scores still list them the same. But most of us, I think, like we've laid out, already intuitively understand the limits of box scores. But overall, I think this approach is good. And I think, as a result, I I really have to give a, a vote of approval early on here to total points. And I think this is going to be a useful thing for evaluating Packers players year to year. But are there any drawbacks? I think there are. First, I think the biggest drawback is a language one. The offensive version of their stat is called points earned. But there's an issue here because not all players earn points the same way. Players who touch the ball seem to earn a lot more points, and that's not necessarily reflective of their contributions. For instance, they threw out the the 2017 season as an example of some of their data. Here are some of the top performers from that season, position by position. Matt Ryan at quarterback earned 62 points. Keenan Allen, a receiver, earned 43. Kareem Hunt earned 22. Brandon Brooks an offensive lineman earned nine. All of those players were the best at their positions, but that's quite a range from nine points all the way up to 62. So you're constantly going to have to be qualifying your statement. You don't get a chance to compare the value of players across positions, which would be really cool to do with like position agnostic evaluation. That's something that Pro Football Focus has has tried to do, and I'm not quite sure they're there yet either, though I will admit to not being as dialed in on on their stats as I once was. The second issue I have with this total points idea is that it doesn't completely show their work. So these are the players, Matt Ryan, Keenan Allen, and so on, that put up big point totals, but we still don't know exactly which plays affected their point totals and how. Say you have one of those examples from up top. Fictional Matt Ryan throws an incomplete pass targeting fictional Keenan Allen. They play on the same team in this example. How much of the blame for the negative EPA there goes to the quarterback and how much the receiver? Are we going to get that information? It doesn't look like it right now. And that could be like premium stuff. They want you to pay for something like that. And that's their prerogative, but that is a flaw, or maybe not a flaw, but a drawback to this data. I want to know which plays are moving the numbers. That's a big deal. Finally, and this is one that I I discovered as I went through the data specific to the Packers, this is a huge one. Edge players are listed with their traditional position groups. So, two players, one for the 49ers and one for the Packers. Nick Bosa is listed as a defensive end, which he nominally is, and Zadarius Smith is listed as a linebacker. Now, it is technically true that that is the position each of those guys plays, but this is not helpful. Those two players are more alike than Joey Bosa or Nick Bosa is like Dean Lowry or Zadarius Smith is like Blake Martinez. Yes, Bosa and Lowry are both defensive ends. And yes, Smith and Martinez are both technically linebackers, but that's as close as those comparisons actually get. They've got to figure out a way to break that out a little bit too. And I hope they do because otherwise 
it's going to be pretty mixed up on the defensive side of the ball. Here are some Packers-related takeaways, though. Just some some numbers about how these guys stack up in, in this number, this stat. Aaron Rodgers tied for the NFL lead among quarterbacks in points earned in 2019. He had 98. That is his best season out of the last four years, and they only have data going back to 2016. He actually ties with 2016. He had 98 total points earned this year and in 2016. He had 73 last year. He had 40 in seven games in 2017. Take that for whatever it's worth. At running back, Aaron Jones had a great season, but he tied for just fourth among running backs in points earned. He had 30 points on the year. League leader Christian McCaffrey had 50. That seems a little bit out of whack. Statistically, I think there was a lot um, a lot more in common between those two, and I wouldn't think that Christian McCaffrey was, what does that mean, make him 60% better than Aaron Jones in 2019? That seems like a lot. Uh, wide receivers and tight ends are grouped together in this stat, uh, so I think you could just call them pass catchers. Uh, the NFL leader in this category was Chris Godwin. He had 59 points. On the Packers, Devontae Adams was tops with 26. Jimmy Graham had 20. Alan Lazard, 14. MVS had 12. And then Mercedes Lewis rounds out the top five with nine. Offensive linemen. Packers had a very, very good offensive line, according to this number. Andre Whitworth uh, led the league with 42 points added. Brian Bulaga just shortly behind him with 37, or excuse me, David Bakhtiari with 37. Brian Bulaga had 27, Elton Jenkins 25, Corey Lindsley 24, and Billy Turner 18. That's kind of the inverse order of uh, our uh, penalties and sacks and starters snaps number that I've referred to a few times over the course of the season. The list was almost exactly the reverse there. Uh, Turner and Lindsley were very nearly tied for the top spot there. Then Elton Jenkins shortly, or excuse me, Brian Belaga shortly behind him. Then Elton Jenkins, then David Bakhtiari. But according to this, the order is almost exactly reversed. And maybe this is more the order that you would expect. Uh, So again, just another data point to consider here. Defensive line edge, not really worth it even to talk about this uh, for the reasons that I laid out before. Kenny Clark is the Packers' highest-rated defensive lineman, but he is 26 points behind Nick Bosa, the top defensive lineman in the league by this number. Uh, Defensive backs, though, this was interesting. Tredavious White was uh, best in the NFL at 49 points, but Jair Alexander not too far behind at 29. Sure, 20 points seems like a pretty significant difference, but among the top-end defensive backs, Jair Alexander is right up there. Then number two is going to be a huge surprise for you. It wasn't Kevin King. It's not Tremont Williams. It's not Adrian Amos. It's not Darnell Savage. The second-best defensive back on the Packers, according to points saved, is Chandon Sullivan. Key plays made by Chandon Sullivan uh, include an interception against the Cowboys and uh, being the, I guess, player of record on that uh, game-ending play against the Bears, that lateral play, I think he technically gets credit for a forced fumble on that play. So that's probably why he is up near the top for the Packers there. So there's a, another potential little flaw in this stat. Overall, uh, still gives us a good picture, but Chandon Sullivan there way out of whack. Uh, kicker and punter, Packers rank surprising here. Uh, Justin Tucker, best in the league for kickers with 23 points added. Uh, Mason Crosby comes in with 16. 
at punter, Tress Way of the Washington Redskins was best in the league at 19 points. J.K. Scott all the way down the list at three. That makes him one of the 10 least valuable punters in the NFL. Take all of this with a grain of salt. No one stat by itself is going to be the be-all, end-all. And this stat, to its credit, does not try to be. It's just another data point, many data points that we can use. Treat every data point and you will, like that and you will not go astray if you build yourself a big enough picture. This is a, it seems like a pretty solid data point, another tool to add to our toolbox, and uh, I'm excited to use it in the coming off season. As a follow-up to that last point and a follow-up to our last episode as well, punters do have value to their teams if expected points and just football performance in general is tied to field position, punters would be pretty important too. I was trying to find some research on on punt returners after after our last episode about the value of returning punts. And I found some interesting research on the exact value that punters can add to your team. It's actual scholarly research from from professional you know, mathematics researchers and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll throw up a link to it in the show notes to this episode, uh, which you will be able to access uh, on whatever device you're using to listen to this. And that's something that I want to try to do more um, to give you a little bit more like written stuff to, to give you sources for the, the, the stuff that I'm referring to. And we should probably have been doing this from the start uh, and uh, just giving you data and, and more things to read related to the, the stuff that we're talking about in this episode. But uh, I figure better late than ever, 268 episodes in, we can start doing some more robust show notes. So check those out on your smartphone right now and take a look at uh, the article that I have linked here uh, that will get you that research about the value punters can bring to your team. To wrap up today, I want to start wetting your whistle as we start to uh, talking about the Packers-Seahawks game this weekend. Do people still say that anymore? Am I just 75 years old? Uh, The defining story of this game is going to be the 2014 NFC Championship game, a game which I still have not seen in its entirety, and I probably never will. I get a little bit sick to my stomach just seeing it, seeing people talk about it. I watched the second half of that game play out on my phone, those play-by-play apps, whatever it was, ESPN, NFL, whatever. It's not really important which one it was. But just that feeling of dread as that played out. Ugh. But it's part of the story to this game. And uh, I thought I would take a look real quick at uh, the, the paths that both of these teams have traveled since that fateful game. The Seahawks, of course, went on to lose to the Patriots in the Super Bowl that season. We're going to focus mainly on how they've performed in the regular season, though. A couple mentions of playoffs here. Since that game, since the 2014 NFC Championship game, the Packers are 46-33-1, just seven games over 500. they have made the playoffs three times, though not since 2016, but have advanced past the wildcard round just one time since they were last uh, or since they were in the NFC Championship game in Seattle. And, of course, that was their trip to the NFC Championship game in Atlanta, which also ended with a very disappointing loss. The Packers, or excuse me, the Packers are 46-33-1, but the Seahawks, not a whole lot better, 50-29-1. They've made the playoffs four times since 2014, 
and have made it past the wild card round twice, once in 2015 and once in 2016. I, I use the wild card round as the baseline there because at least if you get past the wild card round, you've won a playoff game or at least have earned a bye. So that seems like a worthwhile distinction. In the 71 regular season games that he has played since then, Aaron Rodgers has completed just 62% of his passes. He's thrown for just over 18,000 yards, has thrown 138 touchdowns and 27 interceptions. In those 71 games, he's been sacked 188 times and has run the ball just under 240 times, 238 rushes for 1,291 yards and eight touchdowns. His counterpart, who had a pretty rough day in the 2014 NFC Championship game, Russell Wilson, has completed 65% of his passes for almost 18, or, 19, or almost 20,000 yards, 18, 19,748 yards. He's thrown 155 touchdowns against 45 picks. He's been sacked 228 times uh, since the NFC Championship game in 2014. He has rushed 412 times for just over 2,000 yards, but interestingly enough, only has scored eight touchdowns. Yes, Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson have been roughly the same in terms of scoring rushing touchdowns uh, since they met in Seattle that faithful day. Coaches on both sides. One has seen... Some significant change, one is not. Mike McCarthy lasted four more seasons after that game and is now the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Got a mini rant about this. It's nice to see Mike McCarthy get another shot, for me at least, because he seems like a pretty nice guy. Um, And I know it didn't end all that well in Green Bay. But the amount of people out there who are just, I don't know, bitter, whatever about it, still just boggles my mind. Not so much that they're upset about it. I get that part. We're all fans. Some people handle their fandom a little bit differently. But there's a subset of fans, and I've seen a lot of their comments because I'm a masochist or something or crazy person, stupid probably, who reads the comments on stuff. There are people out there who honestly believe that he has never known anything about coaching, that his entire tenure in Green Bay and everywhere else he's been has been luck. I saw one person today, one comment on theathletic.com, someone who paid 60 bucks to make this comment, potentially, said that even his work with Aaron Brooks in New Orleans was basically all Mike Holmgren. So to recap, let's just, let's just play this out. Brett Favre improving after Mike McCarthy got to Green Bay. That was luck. Aaron Rodgers becoming one of the greats of his era. Also luck for McCarthy as well. Building a program that helped established vets reignite their career, like Charles Woodson and Julius Peppers. That was luck too. Winning 15 games in a season, that was luck. It just doesn't stack up. It's possible that Mike McCarthy could have been a better coach. It's likely that he could have been a better coach. But that doesn't mean that everything he did was bad or was luck. And furthermore, if you, at any point, seriously refer to Mike McCarthy as something like McMeathead or McLarty or make any kind of comment about his weight, it says a lot more about you than it does about Mike McCarthy. Yep, he's put on quite a bit of weight since he became the head coach of the Green Bay Packers. Who cares? Criticism of your job as a head coach is part of the gig. Mocking somebody's physical appearance is not criticism. That's you being a butthead. And there is some criticism for you. Stepping off the soapbox now. Pete Carroll, still a head coach in Seattle. Good for Pete Carroll. Matt LaFleur, and we'll wrap up with this. Interesting to note, uh, five years ago when the Packers played the Seahawks in that championship game, 
Lafleur was finishing up his one and only season as the quarterback's coach at Notre Dame. Not even really an NFL coach yet. Had a ways to go. Had to go to Atlanta and then Los Angeles and then Tennessee and now finally Green Bay. And now here he is, head coach of the 13-3 and Green Bay Packers heading into the divisional round of the playoffs. So I've got for you on this episode. Thank you so much for listening in. I do appreciate you tuning in, downloading. Next up, a look at the Seattle Seahawks. If you like what you heard and want to help us keep things going, the best way to support us is by rating and reviewing on iTunes. It helps more people find the show. If you want to take your support to the next level, the best way to do that is to donate a dollar per month at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. We use that money to pay some of our hosting costs for this podcast and for thepowersweep.com. And it also shows us that you really care about some of the content that we are producing. This week at Patreon, where we release some premium content to look at all of our advanced stats on offense for this year check that out at patreon.com slash the power sweep and don't forget to check out our t-shirts and sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. if you've got an idea for the show or have a question or just want to say hi reach out on facebook on twitter or via email or the contact page at thepowersweep.com. we do appreciate everybody who takes the time to reach out if you've asked questions and we haven't gotten to them yet, I have seen those. Uh, just give us a, a, a couple days to sort through those, and we'll try to get those in either uh, as an email response to you, something on the blog, or something in the podcast. Thank you, nonetheless, for reaching out. Because every bit of feedback you give us, every question you ask, helps us make Blue 58 and the Power Sweep better, which, of course, further, which of course excuse me, furthers our mission of helping everybody become a smarter Packers fan. And as I always say... Smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.